All right, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 16. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers can come around and make sure you have a physical copy of the Bible. It'll also be up on the screen here in just a moment if you want to follow along that way as well. And as they're doing that, and before we, we really get into it here, I just want to pause for a moment, and, and I'm going to pray again, um, but I think it's worth mentioning, today is Mother's Day, and I know that for some people, that, uh, this just brings up all kinds of different reactions, right? And some of those are, are positive, and some of those are negative. And so I just wanted to pause here for a moment, kind of acknowledge that, pray over this day, and hopefully release us to then be present uh, in this moment to hear from God what he wants to speak to us this morning. So pray with me. Father, we do uh, thank you this morning for the moms uh, in our lives and for the women in our lives who have mothered us in all kinds of different ways, whatever their role may have been. God, we thank you for uh, the gift that that is, for even the ways that you mother us. The, the, the words of Isaiah speak of you as a, a mothering hen who brings us under your wings. And so, God, may we celebrate those women in our lives who have been moms to us today. We also pray for uh, those who this day, for whatever reason, brings up uh, pain or difficult um, memories. God, we ask that you would uh, bring peace, that you would bring healing, um, that you would even redeem this day for us, whatever that might mean, given our, our particular story. And Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, would you help us to take whatever other things may be going on uh, with us today as we enter this time, would you hold those for us so that we can hear uh, from your word as we continue to explore this idea of new community, today's story is so foundational to the, the new thing that you are doing, that you continue to do in and through the church. We long to be part of that. And so show us either in a new way or a fresh way this morning, what that means for us here in Davis at Discovery. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My notes just fell down. All right, Matthew chapter 16 is where we are today. Thank you, Mark. Um, and I want to begin with, uh, with this. We have in our lives defining moments, right? These moments, uh, there's a few of them that tend to rise to the top for each of us that are uh, life-altering, uh, trajectory-changing moments. And usually behind each of those moments is a question, a really big question that depending on how we answer it, again, it will change the direction of our life. My wife Amy and I, we met um, many years ago now in Salinas. Salinas, California is where we grew up. We had both grown up there, left for college, and come back uh, after we had graduated. And that's when our paths crossed. But also, we were about to embark on the next part of our respective journeys. I was getting ready to go to Colorado to help plant a church, and Amy was getting ready to go to Boston to start graduate school. And, and so our friendship, our relationship, and ultimately even our dating life ended up taking place over this distance. But despite that distance, we grew in our friendship with one another, and ultimately we fell in love. And so it didn't take me too long to figure out, oh man, this, this is the one. And so when you have that moment, you begin to think, okay, how am I going to ask this person to marry me? What is that going to look like? And I, I 
had to um, engage in the very difficult task of how do I ask Amy to marry me? She, she now lives in Boston. I live in Durango, Colorado. I've been to Boston one time in my life. I have no idea like what the city is like or where things are. How am I going to pull off you know, this big moment well? And, and so I did what any you know, man in love would do. I spent many hours on Google trying to figure out where certain things were and doing all this research. But ultimately, I came up with a plan and made reservations, bought a plane ticket out there, and landed in Boston on the Saturday before Thanksgiving uh, in November of 2007. Now, Amy was very much in the middle of the first like, big semester of her graduate program, and her, one of her professors scheduled a test for the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Thanks a lot, whoever, whatever professor that was. So I get there on Saturday. I have this ring. I have this plan in my mind of what we're going to do. And I have to spend the next three days just pretending like nothing major or significant is about to happen in our lives. And here was the worst part of it for me is I'm like sleeping on somebody's couch and I'm, I'm traveling around the city on public transportation. And I have this ring that cost me a lot of money. I think it was the most money I had spent on anything to that point in my life, and I was so paranoid that I was going to lose this ring. I was like Frodo in Boston, keeping it secret, keeping it safe, and just like I, my bag, I was holding my bag, like white knuckle on the train, like, no, don't look at me. Like, I have a ring, and I cannot lose it. Finally, though, Tuesday came, thankfully. I had not lost the ring, and so I let Amy go take her test. I told her to meet me at Marsh Chapel, which is this big, beautiful church building right in the middle of campus on, uh, at Boston University. And uh, she met me there. She had no idea what was about to happen. I, I took her up into the balcony of the chapel. I had set up flowers, and I read to her the story of our relationship, and I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. All right? This amazing, defining, life-altering moment. Right? There we are. We were much younger back then. <laughs> Now, we're, we're going to here in just a moment consider another one of these big life-altering questions. But I begin with this because, again, we have these moments that change everything. And usually behind that moment is a big question. And we're going to look at one of these questions that Jesus asks of his disciples. But we have to kind of go on a bit of a journey to get there. So we'll begin at, uh, at the beginning of chapter 16 in Matthew. And uh, we're going to make our way all the way through verse 20 here before we're done. Let's look at the first seen here, beginning in verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. So we begin here with a very strange alliance between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is one of those facts that we can kind of blow past as we're reading through, uh, reading through the Bible. But this is something we need to sit with here for a second because it's pretty significant. We've seen the Pharisees uh, a lot in Matthew. They've been very visible and very vocal, and they've been in a lot of arguments with Jesus recently. And so just kind of a quick review here. They believed very strongly in the Torah, the law, the first five books of our scriptures. 
And they believed in living in strict accordance with its guidelines. And the reason for this is they believed very strongly if we do this, if we live in sort of perfect accordance with the law, good Torah-centered lives, God will send us a Messiah, a Savior, a King who will lead a military and political victory campaign and restore the kingdom of Israel back to its original greatness. The Sadducees, very different perspective on all of that. They were a subgroup of a larger movement called the Herodians. They supported this puppet ruler named Herod. Again, a character we've seen a few times here in the book of Matthew. Herod was a go-between between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people. And the Sadducees were very practical. They, they, they sort of thought of themselves as realists. And they looked at the Pharisees as a little bit uh, naive kind of idealistic, too religious, a little too conservative. They took the whole law thing a bit too seriously. There are much more practical, real matters to be taken care of. And so they were more about how do we cooperate with the authorities and the powers to protect our interests. Not so concerned about this Messiah that might or might not be coming. So right away, it's very interesting that these two groups have joined forces in order to test Jesus, it actually says a lot more about the Pharisees than anyone else. The Pharisees have been butting heads with Jesus for some time now, but as a, a, a group that cared about the law and about purity and scripture, all these sorts of things, they did not want to get their hands dirty in politics. But as this conflict has been escalating, we've seen the Pharisees are, are not just in disagreement with Jesus, right? They want to kill Jesus. This, uh, we find out about this back in Matthew chapter 12. And so they're going to need some help. If they want to maintain their sort of pious status, they're going to need the help of people with political clout. And so what we see here is this kind of unholy alliance between the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together to try to get rid of Jesus and this movement that is building around him. Now, what's fascinating is that they come at Jesus with an entirely unoriginal test. This is almost a word-for-word -word repeat of an interaction that has happened earlier. Again, back to Matthew chapter 12, they come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, the first part of Jesus' response to this is a little bit different than the last time. And he starts talking about the weather and the sky in the morning and the sky in the evening and how they can interpret uh, what the day is going to be like based on these things. Once again here, we see the, the huge theme of interpretation. You guys spend all this time interpreting the law, interpreting these books, what it means and how we're supposed to apply it. You can even interpret the weather in the morning and, and know what the day is going to look like, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. You cannot even see and notice what is happening right in front of you. This theme of discernment and understanding. We introduced a term earlier in our conversation, this word orthokresis. When you break that down, it means right judgment or right discernment. Orthokresis, a lived wisdom that can see and understand the times that we are in. And when we considered that word before, we learned that Jesus is our orthokresis. 
It is through him that we, uh, that we judge and discern and grow in our knowledge of what is good and true and beautiful. It's through Jesus that we can discern the signs of the times, what is going on right now in this particular moment. After all that, Jesus repeats exactly what he had said to the Pharisees before. Only a wicked and adulterous nation looks for a sign. The only sign you are going to get is the sign of Jonah. As we saw before, this is a major hint as to how this story is going to go down. Just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, Jesus will spend three days in the tomb. Just as Jonah has this resurrection moment being spit back onto the land by the fish, Jesus, after three days, will come out of that tomb. And just as Jonah's message brought a city to repentance, the city of Nineveh, Jesus' message will be a call to repentance for the whole world. You want a sign, Jesus says? I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life. And there's this question that's kind of hanging there. Is what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with, with me and how this story is going to unfold? What will you do with the resurrection? Will you repent, or will you stubborn, stubbornly stick to your old ways? So they have this kind of intense, heated, short scene, and then it says that Jesus just leaves. I love that. He just kind of drops this on them and then walks off. And they begin to cross a lake. The disciples forget to take bread on this journey, and Jesus says to them, Be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the disciples discuss among themselves and said, It's because we didn't bring any bread, right? That's what he's talking about. <laughs> Again, we've seen the disciples be, uh, have these really great moments where they're tracking with Jesus and they, they get it. And then there's other moments where they totally blow it. And then these kinds of moments where it's like, oh, guys, like, <laughs> come on. Why are we still talking about bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember all the things that have just happened to us? The five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls you gathered? The seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand? I was not talking to you about bread. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them, uh, that he was telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The light bulb goes off. All right, here we see Jesus in his full humanness. He's been deeply angered by the wickedness of the religious leadership, here exasperated with his silly disciples, once again exhibiting their little faith. And here we see the disciples in their own way struggling with orthocresis. Unable to discern, to see what Jesus is really talking about. Now, what is Jesus really talking about? He continues to lead them through this process of breaking away from the past, from their old ways, these old traditions, now explicitly telling them to break away from the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It already told them to leave them behind, right? Matthew chapter 15, he says, leave them. They're blind guides. But the old ways can be really hard to give up. 
Their teaching is a yeast that has worked its way through the bread of their worldview, their culture, their religious life. And it corrupts the whole thing. And you don't just get rid of that overnight. Jesus is trying to teach them something important about who he is, about the old system, and about what it's going to mean to step into new creation and this new freedom that they have because of him. And the disciples are hung up on lunch. What are we, we didn't bring any bread. What are we going to do? Do you have your wallet? Like, how are we going to figure this out? And Jesus is inviting them into this new creation, this new freedom. This raises a really important question for us. What little things do we get hung up on that cause us to miss the bigger picture of what God is doing? What little things do we get hung up on that cause us to miss the bigger picture of what God is doing? Do we go around demanding signs when there are signs all around us if we have the eyes to see? Are we worried about lunch, so to speak, when Jesus is far more interested in our freedom and in showing us a new way to live? This is so important as we build new community together. We must not get hung up on small things, caught up in the details, when there is something much bigger, a much bigger vision awaiting us. Now, to that bigger vision, as we move on, we see Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say that I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So here we go, starting to get into this bigger vision. Jesus takes his team aside. He's able to move on from his own frustration and he begins to ask them some of these defining Questions, these significant, life-changing questions that we talked about earlier. And here we really see Jesus' wisdom as, as a leader. He's such a good leader to these guys. He sees, wow, we could really get caught up in a silly conversation about a small thing. Uh, we could really go into the weeds about bread and what that all means. And these kind of detail-level conversations or... Or we could go in the whole other direction, get all high and mighty, deconstructing the theology and the philosophy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By the way, both of those uh, still big distractions for the church. Getting caught up in the weeds and the details or this project of deconstruction. Jesus says, no. There may be some good conversations in either of those places, but right now, no silly arguments no philosophy. Let's just get right down to it. Who do people say that I am? And this is still a major, major question for us today. And people give lots of different answers. I wanted us to kind of sit with some of the answers that our culture gives to this question of who Jesus is here for a moment. So let's take a look at this video. Historical figure. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us. He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't. I don't think he's the son of God. I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm 
pretty sure he existed. Like, I'm not going to say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and he, to me, is the, like, symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that, like, constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like, religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I, I think that's just a lot of love and, and hope. <laughs> Very abrupt ending. So those are some answers that, that I think are pretty common in our culture. The, the answers that the disciples give are, are different, right? They talk about John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus. They talk about Elijah and Jeremiah, these Old Testament prophets, or potentially Jesus is some other prophet. Now what's interesting about both of these sets of answers, even though they're, they're different on kind of the surface level, underneath that, I think there's a very similar thing going on. And it, it's, it's the difficulty that we sometimes have with taking Jesus at his word, accepting Jesus for how he presents himself. And so, oh, he must be a prophet. He must be Jeremiah. He must be John the Baptist come back from the dead. He was a wise person. He was a loving person. He's a, a, a significant historical figure. He was a marketing genius. Anything but Messiah, King, Son of God. In both cases, both 2,000 years ago and now, this difficulty with accepting Jesus for who he claims to be. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time on this. They don't sort of unpack the answers that other people are giving. He immediately turns the question back onto his disciples. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Jesus here cuts through all the noise of the debates and the arguments raging internally and externally, again, exhibiting his great wisdom by asking this deeply clarifying question. And then he also in this moment affirms the growth and progress or gives his disciples an opportunity to see their growth and progress, how their little faith is actually expanding. Remember back in Matthew chapter 8, they had a very similar question. Who, who is this? What kind of man is this? In Matthew 14, Peter said, truly you are the son of God. And now we get Peter's massive confession of faith. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are, you are the king that we have been waiting for. This is just a, a, a huge moment of insight and understanding on the part of Peter and the rest of the disciples. And Jesus responds to it with one of the most incredible things that he says in any of the accounts of his life. Look at what Jesus says in response to this. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this, this is different Jonah, by the way. <laughs> This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone. <laughs> 
this incredible insight and then just keep it on the down low for a little while. Let's kind of walk through this, what Jesus says here. He begins with this word of blessing. Peter is blessed with insight, with wisdom, with seeing. Jesus says this is insight that could have only come from God. And this brings us back to, again, another thing that we've seen come before this. Back in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells all these parables about the kingdom of heaven. And one of the themes that's repeated through, throughout that is this idea of whoever has will be given more. Whoever has will be given more. They will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Here we begin to see this is not just a theoretical principle that Jesus drops into some teaching. This is really happening right before our eyes as the story of Matthew unfolds. Peter contrasted here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Peter getting more and more, the disciples getting more insight, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even what they have is being taken away. Peter Orthocretes, rightly discerns, and Jesus showers him with more, with this affirmation, this new name, this new identity, this mission. Name change is a a pattern that God uses all throughout Scripture. Many people have their name changed as part of the process of being chosen by God to play a special role in his story of redemption. And so Simon becomes Peter. Simon, who doubted when he was walking on that stormy lake, becomes Peter the rock. Peter's role is deeply debated. It's an ancient debate between Catholics and, and Protestants. And while there's still arguments about that going on today, the larger truth here is that Peter recognized Jesus for who he truly is. Peter recognizes Jesus for who he truly is. He's asked this clarifying question. He answers with great boldness and conviction. You are the Messiah. You are the king that we have been waiting for. And then Jesus moves from this personal affirmation over Peter to the, once again, the bigger vision. And for the first time in the book of Matthew, we're introduced to this word church. This new thing called the church, this community that Jesus is building will have a name and it will be church and it will be a movement and it will be a force for the kingdom of heaven. And it begins with Peter's confession and it continues on as people submit to Jesus as king. And I want to walk through some observations about the church from this early vision casting moment that Jesus has with his disciples. First, the church is built. The foundation is submission to Jesus as king. This is where Peter is our model. This is where Peter is our foundation. Where we claim Jesus as king, we build on that foundation. Second, the church is given the keys to the kingdom, which is to say the church has authority. This, uh, this image here, keys, uh, was an image symbolic of authority. Now, partly what this means is that we have tremendous authority as agents of the kingdom of heaven wherever we are, whatever we are doing, whether we are a student, a parent, an employee, a boss, our whole community together. We have the access codes, if you will, to the kingdom of heaven. There is incredible empowerment in this statement. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, keys... And the authority that they represent typically referred in that context 
to the power to decide who is in and who is out. You would have a kingdom and it would have walls and it would have a gate and there would be keys to that gate and you could unlock it and open it to let people in or to keep people out. These keys, however, are not about closing the gate and locking people out. They are not about deciding who is in and who is out. They are about unlocking the gate and flinging the doors wide open. In fact, some of Jesus' harshest words to the Pharisees come later on in Matthew when he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. What do they do? They shut the door. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Our role, our authority, these keys that we have been given are not about keeping people out. They are about inviting in, opening the doors wide for whoever wants to come in. And opening the doors of the kingdom, especially for those who have been left out. Now Jesus takes us even a step further in this next comment. He talks about binding and loosing. This is very odd language to us. We don't talk about binding and loosing. This would have been very normal language for that time, though. All teachers and rabbis were in the practice of binding and loosing. It was a euphemism. It was a metaphor for interpretation, for discernment. Now again, Jesus has released his disciples from the old system. He's released them from the old leadership. He's taken them on this cross-cultural experience to show them how big the kingdom of heaven really is. Remember, this is what we saw last Sunday. Now giving them the keys to the kingdom, giving this authority. The final piece of this is this process, this never-ending journey of binding and loosing, of interpreting and discerning. What are we supposed to do? And how are we going to do that? What does this look like right now in this particular time and place? What things do we need to leave behind? What things do we need to pick up? How can we best communicate and share the good news of Jesus? What language will we need to use? What stories will we need to tell? What practices will help us accomplish this mission? Binding and loosing. Very archaic language. To me, one of the most exciting parts of doing church together. And one of the things that, that saddens me and troubles me so often is that for a lot of people, there's this deep ambivalence about church. It, it's, it's a thing, an event that maybe you go to once or twice a month on a Sunday morning. It, it's a good spiritual thing to do to get in touch with God. Uh, you know, whatever those things might be that, that people tend to think of, there's this disconnect between like the really important things in my life and then there's some like churchy activities on, on top of that. But look at this thing that Jesus invites us into. The keys of the kingdom, binding and loosing, building and experimenting and practicing and working together to open the doors and invite Everyone to taste and see that God is good, that Jesus is king. This is just an incredible adventure. It's one of those things that's like, I can't believe we get to do this. Uh, that, that God would entrust us with this great task. We get to create the future together. 
Now, there are all kinds of things that, that kind of go into making what happens, especially here at Discovery, happen, right? There, there's things that need to get set up, crackers that need to get passed out to kids, paper that's handed out by the connection tents, coffee that needs to get poured, people meeting together during the week, praying for each other, all these kinds of things. And I think sometimes we struggle with, like, what difference does it make? You know, what, what impact am I really having by doing this particular task? This is why this text to me is so important for us, to come back to this, to realize, no, what we are doing changes everything. You're not just meeting with someone or passing out some stuff or unraveling wires. You are binding and loosing. You are taking the keys of the kingdom, flinging the gates wide open so that people can discover the good news of Jesus. Ah, there's very few things that are more exciting and interesting and adventurous than that. Now, finally, this, this whole thing sort of closes with this idea that Jesus is leading the charge and nothing will get in his way. What an incredible promise this is. When Jesus says the gates of Hades will not overcome the church, gates by definition are defensive. Which means that in this game, we always have the ball. We are always on offense. And Jesus is out in front of us and nothing will overcome him. Now, this doesn't mean that discovery is going to be successful. This doesn't mean that everything we do, it's going to work perfectly and go smoothly. We are in a fight between ultimate evil and ultimate good. And of course, it's going to get gnarly at times. But the promise here, the good news here, is that King Jesus wins. King Jesus wins. And even if it feels like we're losing, we have the ball. We are always on offense and King Jesus wins. Now, our, our hope, our desire here at Discovery is to take all of this, all the authority and resources that Jesus has entrusted to us and help as many people as possible discover the good news of Jesus. And so for us today, there are two really big, defining, clarifying questions that we need to sit with for a few moments. The first, who do you say that Jesus is? This question that Jesus turns back on his disciples, we need to be able to answer ourselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? And if you're not totally sure how to answer that, if you'd like to process that some more, if you want to talk that through, if you want to pray with someone and accept Jesus as your king, we're going to have some folks uh, available to pray. There'll be a couple of people over here uh, on this side of the theater and a couple of us over here on this side of the theater. We would love to pray with you about that this morning, but you've got to be able to answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And then the second question is, are you in the game? What does this participation in this thing called church look like? Have you taken the authority and mission Jesus gives to us seriously? Are you flinging open the gates, binding and loosing, helping the kingdom overcome the gates of Hades? Or are you on the sideline? Or are you caught up in some silly argument or debate? Maybe you feel inadequate or not up to the task. 
As we'll see next week, Peter has this moment, this incredible moment of confession. Jesus, you are the king. You are the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. A handful of verses later, he's going to totally blow it. Jesus entrusts the keys of the kingdom to very fragile people. That's part of what makes this beautiful good news to me. It's not about how talented you are or how skillful you are if you have it all together. It's about confessing your need for Jesus to be your king. And then rolling up your sleeves and doing the work of the kingdom, loving and serving and feeding and fighting and discerning and pursuing wisdom and sharing and opening the doors and inviting others to come along with you. Not about being perfect. Submit to Jesus as king and roll up your sleeves. The mission is hard. The task is daunting, but it's also the greatest adventure of your life. So who do you say that Jesus is and how are you going to be involved? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Um, this morning, just a very clear challenge to get clear on the question of who Jesus is and, and to sort of examine our own participation in your mission. And so I pray for those here who um, are working through that question. Who really is this Jesus? I pray that this morning, right now, in fact, would be a time of great clarity about that. This life-altering, defining moment. Oh, Jesus is King. Jesus is Savior. Jesus has come to rescue me from my brokenness, my sin, my dysfunction, my separation from God. He's come to, to bring me into right relationship with God and with other people. And then for others of us, we've been kind of on the fringes, on the sidelines. We, we struggle to see the connection between the work of church and some of the big questions of our world. And yeah, this is, this is what you have called us to do. To be a community that takes the authority and the resources that you have given us and to use it to bless, to invite people into your kingdom, to invite people into right relationship with God. God, we want to be a church that helps as many people as possible discover what great news this really is. So would you help us to know how to do that well? Would you give us discernment as we bind and loose? As we figure out what it means for us to be this kind of community in this place at this time. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.